Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 6.40 Toronto. Lovely to have you here. It's Toronto Today. My name's Greg Brady. And it's the day after the day after. So you kind of don't have to give the results anymore. Most of you know what happened in the mayoral election. Some of you might drift in and out of the news cycle during the week. But yes, Olivia Chow happens to be the new mayor of Toronto. When will things get done? When will things get organized? A lot of the story that I think is sort of like, it kind of, if it passes over me and I'm just sort of foggy about it and I'm like listless and have a little bit of apathy about it, I bet it's certainly the case for you. I'm not really concerned about staffing issues and whether she clears some people out of City Hall and brings in her own people. That's bound to happen. To some extent, I think anybody that walks into a building says, hmm, what's here? Who's adaptable? Who's energetic? Who's personable? Who can I work with? Who who are my deputies? Who are my lieutenants, if you will? And I'm sure Olivia Chow's thought about that and she's going to get a better feel for that. Jennifer McKelvey was kind of a placeholder. I don't mean to be demeaning about it, but Jennifer McKelvey was just status quo. Hold it down. Be here. Cut some ribbons. Um, she endorsed Anna Bailau after saying she wasn't going to two months ago. She'll go back to being a ward counselor, and that's all probably for the best. She didn't want to run for mayor. She doesn't strike me as somebody that would ever have been interested in being mayor. And maybe then you'd say that would suggest that she wouldn't be a good mayor. I Again, I don't know. That's Maybe that's not for me to say. But at the same time, Olivia Chow will walk in and start to do things more her way. I'm going to play you a good chunk of the conversation she had with Alex Pearson uh, live on location at Nathan Phillips Square yesterday as she headed to City Hall to have some meetings um, with several different counselors, some staff as well. But the real business of City Council won't get going until July 15th, 16th. I got no problem with that. But then the work really needs to start. Like, I think anytime you're in any sort of urgent situation in the workplace and you're exhausted from what you just went through, go take your time. Like if Olivia Chow wants to get on an airplane and go to Hawaii right now for a week. Great. Do that. Go to Palm Springs. Go to Myrtle Beach. Go wherever. Go to cottage country. Go wherever you like and spend a good chunk of time there decompressing, but ready to work when you get back. I think those are the things that are pretty common that we all could relate to, to a great extent. Um, we'll play you some of that at, at 630. Some of what, what what was said yesterday about her is really, really interesting. And right away, I think there's an urgency to clear out red tape. Brad Bradford knows housing. That's his meat and potatoes. He knows the file inside and out. We could obviously point to John Tory, Brad Bradford. Uh, many people currently on city council. I mean, there's only two councilors returning from the mayoral race. Um, Anthony Perusa is one, so I should say there's three. But there's only three coming back to the mayoral race. And you could make the case, guys, we should have done more over the last several years. I think I think that's fair. And I think they've accepted that that's fair. But here's the wake up call. You've got somebody who is, quote unquote, progressive. So be progressive. Move quickly. Clear the red tape. I asked Brad Bradford yesterday whether or not they're in a better place to build housing, build proper housing, build affordable housing more quickly with Anna Bailau, who didn't win, who came really close and knows housing also really well, or Olivia Chow. 
He had a long breath and a sigh prior to his answer. So I don't know if that gave the answer away, but here's what he said. You know, it's hard to ascertain exactly Olivia's plan on this or on any of the any of the sort of things in the window. She talked about building more bureaucracy to build more housing. She talks about, you know, the city of Toronto becoming the largest uh, construction contractor in the entire country. She doesn't frame it that way. That's just what I took away from it. Uh, That's not going to help us build housing. I can tell you we have the slowest approval timelines in North America. Uh, There are so many layers of bureaucracy and red tape. Uh, She is talking about that this morning. But the idea to build more housing requires us to build more bureaucracy. That's the exact opposite thing that we need to be doing. We need to fix the process. Yeah, the process is a problem. And uh, I I always note that big cities will always have their issues. Um, Canadians love where they live, that's for sure. But they'll move somewhere to get housing affordability. Olivia Chow says, let's build a city for everybody. This city isn't for everybody. There will still be an economic baseline. There will still be a balancing act that you play in your head saying, if I can afford this, what about that? There are certainly points in time where I've realized in my own life, I can't afford to live here. I can't afford to to book that plane ticket right now. And people will deal with those kind of economic realities. I'm sorry. There's no inherent right to live in the city of Toronto. You will have to have a baseline of being able to afford it. But we can make this easier and we can increase supply and we can have obviously cut away a lot of the red tape and the barriers into the market. We can do all that stuff. Here's what Olivia Chow said about building houses and why it's been a struggle. This was on the campaign trail. For far too long, City Hall has walked away and stopped building housing. That will stop now as your, for me as your mayor. We're seeing the impact of it on our streets in our food bank. Now, with this new housing development there's light at the end of the tunnel. Okay, so let's let's blast through that tunnel. And when she gets back from vacation in several days into July, we'll see if indeed um, she can do that to a great extent. Remember as well, she put a lot on the campaign trail into saying, well, we'll have a lot of money from Toronto's new vacant home tax. It doesn't look that way. Just 2,100 properties were declared empty. They put that data out at the end of April. Um, and so it's it's a bit of a bust. It's not even close. Uh, to the number of empty properties they were hoping um, there would be. We're not like Vancouver. Like, there's no ghost cities and ghost streets. There are in Vancouver, British Columbia. There aren't in Toronto, Ontario. We're a city that people want to live there, work there, and there aren't aren't many vacancies. The vacant home tax was was a total bust. Well, I don't think it was on, on purpose or by design. But it was a situation that didn't end up working out. I'll put it that way. 416-870-6400. Love to hear if you've got confidence on this file uh, for Olivia Chow when it comes to housing. And I'll play you some of her conversation, which focused a good chunk on housing, with Alex Pearson at the bottom of the hour. All right, 613. uh, It's 15 now and 25 a little bit later on. And we say good morning uh, to, of course, our producer, Sheba Siddiqui. She's always... You're not Sheba. What's going on here? Who are you? I'm not Sheba. My name is Lyle. I am the yeah. new content producer here at 640. But but not not permanently for Sheba. Not you might want to yeah, you might want to say that right away. It's like planting your flag in the in the sand this early is very uh, it's controversial. But yeah, Lyle Robin shows our producer. Where'd you come from? I actually came from the east. I've come from the far land of the east. Scarborough? 
Yeah, no, New Brunswick. Oh, New Brunswick. Okay, that. fine, yeah. fine, fine, fine. Came to find civilization and technology out of the woods. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh-huh. I, I came here right in the summer of 2019 to this beautiful city, just in time for it all to shut down, and have been riding the wave ever since, trying to uh, to do what I'm doing right now. So just just in the last 12 months, you really got to see probably more of Toronto. Do more. We were we were among the most locked down cities on the planet through all of 2020 and a good chunk of 21. So you're just getting to enjoy it now. It's really, it's really been since I think last Canada Day. That, w- that yeah. was the best marker of when I really started to feel like, okay, I'm in Toronto now. Things are open. I can go to a concert and not feel like there's a bunch of things I have to keep track of. There's no papers I have to carry around. It, it really was last Canada Day where I noticed the, the shift, I guess. I think you're right. There were a lot of people out. I did a Canada Day thing in my community last year and... I could tell, I, I saw, I, I observed other people going, oh my God, Bob, I haven't seen you. Like, I, you. There were a lot of people just stepping out, it felt like, for the first time um, at the end of June. My first concert back, I know you're a big concert guy like me, was May 3rd, and that's really hard to believe. First time crossing the border in a car was like June 15th. So you're right, just in the last two months, last year at this time, we started doing stuff again, is the best way I can put it. Yeah, and when uh, actually that was that was the big thing too. I went to a concert with my fiance, and we were looking around, and I just remember saying, "Wow, look how many people are mm-hmm. in the same place at the same time again." No social distancing. We don't have to worry about you know people walking around, making sure there's space. It was just it felt it was a very freeing experience. Yeah, it was it was absolutely like that. Um, a good chunk. So you're here with us the rest of the week. Uh, yeah, I, I, you're not. It's a it's just dark in that studio. So I thought you were Sheba for a minute. You don't have four kids, do you? Do uh, are, are there no. going to be kids stories? I, I it's mean, it's something I have to aspire ca- to. I have two cats. If that counts, that counts. Well, yeah, yeah. So yeah, if they were people, um, you know, that's a different story. Uh, or if there are cats identifying as people, I suppose. Like I know we're getting it the other way around a few in a few different places. So um, yeah, either way, great to have you here with us this morning. Great to be here. So I saw this. You know, now and then we have school board meetings here, and it's frustrating. Um, you can't get school board trustees on. You can't get directors of education on. You can't get superintendents on. They're the hardest human beings to get on the radio. Look at that entire. Look at the Halton board and all that controversy with the um, teacher was the prop with the prosthetics from the fall onward at Oakville Trafalgar High School. Just a messy situation all around, like parents, um, other teachers, children, the teacher himself, herself like that. Like, again, we don't there's so little we have concrete knowledge about in that context. And you can't get anybody to step up in a leadership role and say, well, this is what I think, and this is how it should be. Um, This woman spoke at a, she's a trustee in California at a school board meeting. And I listened to the audio last night and I just thought it was, it was brilliant. And she made the point. She was basically in response to some anti, you know, LGBTQ protests in her community. I really like what she said, but I also like the fact she leaves it open to say, you like there's no pro LGBTQ, anti LGBTQ. There's nuanced discussion, debate on a lot of issues. Now I'm gonna go to New Brunswick in a little bit and give you an update on what's happening there. I don't know that Ontario's next, but I it wouldn't shock me if these kind of conversations started percolating here. Here's Jackie Goldberg, an LA school board president, a passionate, passionate defense of how you take care of other people around you who may not look like you, be like you, but they deserve to be treated like you. Now, a lot of people out there I talk to, 
outside Sadakai and said, oh, I have a gay cousin, I have a gay nephew, I can't be homophobic. B.S. B.S. You can be homophobic and have a gay friend, a gay neighbor, a gay son, a gay anything. Talk to all the gay kids that get thrown out of their houses and onto the streets by parents who say, I won't have you in my house any longer. And tell me that having a gay relative means that you're not homophobic. But here's what really scares me. When you have two or three days of this kind of chaos, of people screaming at the top of their lungs outside a school that read a book with one sentence in it that said, yeah, guess what? Families can include two moms and two dads. By the way, at the little discussion at the school after that, as soon as the book was over, one of the little girls sitting at my knees said, I have two mommies. But a little boy on my other side said, I have five grandmas. <laughs> the idea that there are different kinds of families the people screaming out at the streets, they didn't get a chance to find out about that because they made a decision based on hearsay. They made a decision based on agitators, not from their community, but from outside their community who saw an opportunity to take advantage of the real fears of people. I want to be very, very, very clear. Nobody has to accept me. I'm not looking for your acceptance but you better treat me the same way you treat everybody else. That's how we live in this country. And that's a woman in the United States. And I would echo that in Canada. Like I'll, I'll go for to the wall for you to get equal treatment. I'll go for the wall to you for, to say I, I I'm different, but you're not going to marginalize me. Absolutely. Absolutely. That should be the case. Now. I don't think that's necessarily a juxtapose to new Brunswick. She's talking about a book that talks about two mommies and two daddies. And that's great. It's different. Again, you'll have to remind me why anybody who's six or seven years old should be taught about what oral sex is. Like, seriously, like that, like you can be on the one side there and say, don't malign anybody. Don't treat anybody differently or don't discriminate. And then say, hmm, is this part of the curriculum? I've said this. Parents will argue about sex education forever. They'll argue, they'll be arguing about it in 50 years when when some of us are dust and others will be closer to dust. They will. They'll do that. Now in New Brunswick, it it's you know this these kind of controversies have certainly reared up. Yesterday, um, the conservative premier Blaine Higgs had a cabinet shuffle and moved some people out who publicly disagreed with him. I don't love that aspect of politics, but I also do think. You have to speak um, with one unified voice in government sometimes. I do think that. Lyle Robichaud, who you just got introduced to about 10 minutes ago, is is a New Brunswicker. Does that New make Brun sense? New Brunswicker, that's Okay, correct. that's great. So, like, what's your what's your lens into what's going on with Blaine Higgs out there with, with parents and educators, et cetera? Well, unfortunately, I think he's just picked a fight with the wrong group again. This isn't the first time that he's been in the news for having his his own cabinet disagree with him. There's been strikes with the nurses. There's been strikes with the teachers mm -hmm. group out there. Um, he's just he's just not a very popular politician. I know a lot of politicians aren't that popular, but he is, I think, in the upper echelon of, of unpopular. But this is one of those issues where I don't think there's ever going to be middle ground to be found, unfortunately, especially when it comes to, to kids, because that's what the core issue that's is right. here, about um, whether children under the age of 16 should be able to go up to teachers and say, my pronouns are this, and the teachers should be able to call them that or not call them that. Now it's basically saying that under the age of 16 years old, uh, a teacher calls them the pronouns that the parents say, and the parents are involved in the decision. It's it's kind of a big wishy-washy mess. And actually, my mother is an educator. Uh, ah, she's a good. vice principal there. 
She's a vice principal back in my hometown. She was a guidance counselor for a long time. So she actually deals with these cases a lot with these kids who are in transition or LGBTQ. And it's it's an incredibly frustrating time for both them and the educators. I bet it is. It seems, look, uh, you know, I, there may not be any perfect answer. The problem also with the Higgs policy is, um, Lyle, that under the age of 16 is not under the age of eight or nine. Like what a, what a massive difference Correct. that an eight-year-old faces in second or third grade about identity and, and confidence and understanding and sexuality, which like I don't think they they are at all um, sexual beings. They might think somebody's cute. That's and that's about it. And that's a hugely different thing from someone who's 15, 16, getting ready to drive, getting ready to vote, getting ready to drink, et cetera, et cetera. So now now I look really quick before we get to Dave Bradley on the cabinet shuffle and I go, are those cabinet ministers speaking up because they firmly disagree with the policy on somehow on moral or ethical grounds? They disagree with the premier or do they? Do they just want to look good politically and make sure that they that they hold office? There's no way to know, right? There's no way to know what their motivation is for this. I think there's an attitude of almost like, I don't want to touch this one. I, I think there is. I think when it comes to issues like this, there is still some fear that no matter what side of the fence you sit on, you're, you're going to get stuff thrown at you if you disagree with the other side. And, and I think especially like where it comes to we're talking about kids that are under the age of 10. And I don't know about you, but when I was six, seven, eight years old, I didn't even know which way it was up let alone about the of issues that are not. being talked about here. No. I, I do think there is this attitude of, like, I really don't want to touch this, so I'm going completely hands-off. Which seems silly because I just think it's going to fester and you'll have more accusations of, well, you know, you're this phobic or you're hateful if you don't actually talk about it. And and again, to me, I go, well, I disagree with you on, on where we'd be with this policy, but I don't hate you. You've got your opinion, and I don't think it's coming from a place of, hating everybody else around you and hating kids and hating families and hating people who are different. I, I just think we can, you know, again, we, we've lost the ability in a lot of ways. I think you're saying too to agree to disagree sometimes. Absolutely. I think middle uh, ground has completely disappeared in a lot of respects. It has. So Olivia Chow is the new mayor elect of Toronto. Um, it is the first racialized woman to become mayor of the city of Toronto. Someone who knows the city really well, and she knows Olivia really well as well, is the current leader of the Ontario NDP. And it's been a while since we had her on. We're always happy when she makes time for our audience. She is Marit Stiles. It's great to have you on. Thanks for making the time. It's great to be here. Yeah, um, you must have been quite happy with the result Monday. I'll ask you, because you're an election veteran, were there 15 to 20 nervous moments watching Olivia Chow mm-hmm. trailing? And that was quite unique. Yeah. I, I think we had some advanced polls move in closer to the 830 mm-hmm. hour um, that, that secured the victory for Olivia Chow. But was it nerve wracking? It was nerve wracking. It was definitely a, a nail biter at the beginning there. And uh, we were, I think, like everybody else, you know, I mean, I, I always am knocking on wood in any election, no matter how far ahead uh, anyone seems. I, I'm always uh, a little nervous, but, you know, it, 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 it came together in the end, and I think it was a great win for the city of Toronto. What are your expectations? You know it's a difficult job. I've said this. I'm not sure it's a, it's a great job the next three years. There's a lot of digging out from under um, here in Toronto. But, but do, you, do you believe the city's in a better place this coming fall, let's say, than it would have been at the same time last fall? 
I, I do. You know, I think that there's no question that this election, I mean, obviously none of us saw it coming. I, I think I was listening to your podcast yesterday and, and you know, we're mm-hmm. all talking about how we couldn't have imagined ourselves in this position six months ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here we are. And actually, I think what it, it gave Torontonians was an opportunity for change. And it was pretty clear that that was the message. Uh, people wanted some kind of change one way or another. Um, people are hurting. You know, they're struggling. I mean, just look at these record rent. Uh, it's, it's, it's crazy, and people can't afford it. And, you know, young professionals in my riding, you know, they're, they're headed downward economically. They're not, they're not going upward, you know. So everybody is really worried about this. And I think Olivia's message, which was, you know, empathetic, it was she really identified with people, uh, she seems, and she is strong. Um, and I think she spoke to real people, to regular people, um, and, and to the heart of what we want this city to be. And I'm really hopeful that she has the skills. I, I know she has the skills and the leadership ability to make it happen. I think you're right. I think she connected with people who maybe even were voting in election smart for the first time, who were 22, mm. 23, 24. And, and though, you know, they're not, uh, we were all that age once and we're not terribly like focused in on what property taxes are or interest rates are. We just know what's ahead of us economically at that age. And we think, well, it'll get better. I won't be a starving student forever. But but uh, they're hoping, hoping Olivia provides them a way to buy a first home or be able to even stay yeah. in the city and, and rent for a few years until you could potentially buy. That's that's the plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and there's no question, like, I think all levels of government, you know, are talking the talk when it comes to we need to build more housing, we need to build more affordable housing. But we're not really seeing it it happen fast enough. And and I think that where her focus is going to be on making sure, you know, enough of that is truly affordable for people. And, And then the other stuff, you know, just seeing the services in our city really decline, right? Like, TTC. I mean, people not using the TTC and then talks about service cuts to the TTC. You know, this is stuff that so many people in this city rely on. Um, and, you know, increasingly, you know, uh, we, need to, we need to focus on those things. We need to focus, as she said, on what the needs are in the community. What do people actually need to get to work, to have a good quality of life, and then work from there. Mart Stiles, our guest on Toronto Today. She's the leader of the Ontario New Democrats. What's your belief that Doug Ford and Olivia Chow can work well together? You know, actually, I think there's a lot of things. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't always agree with Premier Ford uh, on his tactics. So, But I do think, as I just said, I think we all know and recognize that housing has to be built and that uh, we have to invest in truly affordable housing. I don't think he prioritizes that enough. And I, don't, I think he relies too much on developers, you know, building that housing. But I do think that there's areas where Olivia has talked very openly about the need to take some really significant action uh, to reduce some of the obstacles that exist to building that a really affordable housing, to get things moving. You know, uh, Ford talks to talk, but we have seen housing starts go down, not up. And, and so we need, we need that kind of leadership at the city level, that hunger to get things done. Uh, that I think I think Olivia has, and I think that's an area where I think they can agree on some things, and they can work together. And the great thing about Olivia is she is somebody who really rolls up her sleeves. She works really hard, and she is able to work with everyone uh, to get things done. 
How much of a side focus is what the Ontario Liberals are doing with their leadership? I ask that because you've been leader less than a year. Um, and the Liberals had more people vote for their party across the province than the NDP did. I, I, we can't hang that on you. You weren't the leader. But that election was believed to be a disaster for the Liberals. Um, are, everybody's going to check out their competition, right, in life, in sports, in, in anything like that. What, what are your observations about what they're doing? And do you try to counterbalance and counteract that? Mm, well, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard, right, because it's a temptation to do that. But I think the thing is, you know, for us, we, we have a very solid official opposition. We have 30 seats in the legislature. We have three by-elections coming up. Uh, and we, we are really focused on, you know, making sure we, we can, you know, hold one of those seats, pick up maybe some others. But look, the Liberals are very, you know, they're kind of stuck on the sidelines, frankly, right now. And they're, they're clearly figuring out who they are, what they stand for. When I listen to those candidates, if I do, uh, you know, they're all over the map. I don't know, I don't know what they stand for. They have a very long road ahead of them, and, and we, as the official opposition and the NDP, with the strongest and best opportunity to defeat Doug Ford, we have to keep our eye very much on, on the Ford government. And that's what I tell my team, and that's what we're focused on every single day, is, is you know, holding them to account, but also you know, putting forward our own vision of what Ontario should be and can be. Uh, and how we could actually, you know, help people in this province. And, you know, I saw the Liberals put everything they had into um, Anna Bailao's campaign this, this last few weeks. Um, but it's pretty clear that also didn't connect. I mean, it, there was a bump, but I think um, that, that a lot of people out there across this city and across Ontario, as I'm hearing it, are really tired of the status quo politics that they've gotten from liberals and conservatives. So, But would you, know, you, would you say the liberals, did the liberals put in as much to Anna's campaign as your party put into Olivia's? I didn't see, like if we're going to, examples of leaders, John Fraser, the interim leader, didn't endorse anybody. Nader Smith stayed clear. Bonnie Cromie didn't endorse anybody. I, I didn't see a lot of infrastructure. Your party, your machinery, if you will, which is great to have that much support, all back to Olivia Chow, right from the get-go. Well, like we, it was a team effort. Yeah, I mean, we certainly weren't divided uh, the way they were, I think. Um, mm. You know, there were a number of people who are liberals, like Anna and Mitzi and others who were, who were in there who were running, and we were very united. And I, I do think that helped, right? But that's because we are organized that way. Like, we have our eye on the ball. And I always say to people, you know, that when they ask me about the liberals, like, for me, um, my focus 100% right now is on the conservatives and defeating conservatives and conservative ridings across this province. And I think we can do it. And that's why I'm spending my time. And, you know, I think when you and I spoke last, I think I maybe mentioned that even when the house was sitting, like I was, I was confirmed leader four months ago. Yeah. Since then, while the house was sitting, I have been in 47 ridings. Uh, and those are almost all conservative writings. And you can be darn sure, I mean, be in those writings over and over again, because those people, those conservatives, folks who voted conservative, you know, and some who voted liberal, too. You know, I'm feeling a disappointment. I feel like they feel like they were misled in the last election. And it's up to us not just to kind of, you know, criticize uh, Ford, like we talked about, but it's also on us to propose solutions. And that's why I'm so excited about the opportunity Mm -hmm. that Olivia has to really turn things around in this city. Mart Styles, leader of the NDP. Thanks very much for the time. It's good to catch up, and, and I'm sure we'll chat later in the summer. Have a great Canada Day weekend as well. You too. Happy Canada Day. There's Mart Styles joining us from the Ontario NDP. Last inflation uh, period, we were at 4.4%. We've dropped to 3.4%. And when you compare it to a lot of the inflation rates still, still in, in Western Europe, 
Germany's at 6.1, dropping from 7.2. Italy's at 6.4. The U.K., they're having devastating times paying for mortgages there as rates adjust. 8.7, and it's stuck there between um, between what was uh, announced in May and what was announced in June. And there's a lot of countries in, in South America, a lot of countries in, um, in Asia that are having even worse inflation problems. So what's it mean for all of us? We love leaning on Dr. Eric Cam, who's an economics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University. It's great to have you back on. Thank you very much. But I don't know what happened to Sheba and Gord. Is this because of me? It could be. Let's see how the next several minutes go. We'll see. Um, I'm, I'm happy to d- double down, triple down on, on the recommendations I've made to uh, upper management. Um, Eric, I'm fine doing that. Um, inflation's down again. Um, so how that's a natural question. People will come back and say inflation's down. What will happen to Canadian interest rates? Have we, can we finally, we took a break for a month and then it was, here's another trickle up. Here's another trickle up. Is this done? Does the bank of Canada read the tea leaves here and say, we're getting it down to where it actually should be, which is probably around 2.5 or 3%. Well, I think the bank of Canada reads the tea leaves, but I don't think they're reading them correctly, nor do I think they're reading them fast enough because if I was a betting person, which I'm not, Uh, I think that the rates are going to go up one more time before the end of this calendar year. You're right. I mean, there's two things going on right now at the same time. You've got the consumer price index, which is basically kind of flat right now. Prices are kind of stabilizing, and that's a good thing. But real gross domestic product is still trending upward, and it's trending upward rather fast. And again, that sounds like it's a good thing, but it's a trigger for the Bank of Canada to say, we may have to raise interest rates one more time to to stabilize savings and to stabilize the price level. So two things I wanted to bring up. Mm -hmm. You're, You're right. Number one, what should the Bank of Canada do? I personally, they don't pay me, but I personally wouldn't raise interest rates because I think that people are just starting to get their feet back under them. I mean, remember what's going on with the prime is shocking. People tend to forget it's gone from 0.25 to 4.75 in a rather short period of time. People's mortgage rates have gone up 50, 60% in some cases. And I'm always for the person, for the homeowner, for the consumer. And that's got to be awful for a lot of people to try to make their mortgage payments. Now they're playing the opportunity cost game of if we're going to pay our mortgage, what are we not going to do? And I think that's very dangerous. Number two, the Bank of Canada, as we know, has a dogged inflation hysteria. It says right on their webpage, we control inflation to a rate of two to three percent, and they are not going to stop until that rate hits that. And so to get to those types of numbers, and I'm not judging, I'm just saying they're going to get there. They're going to have to raise rates, in my opinion, one more time before the calendar year is over. But if you're asking me, mm-hmm. as Joe Q economics professor, would I raise rates one more time? No, because my concern is always, will always be disposable income and being able to feed and house your family. And I think right now that's harder, Greg, than it's been in about three decades. I'm looking at 2019's month by month in Canada. I know it's hard to remember what 2019 even felt like, but it's it's the closest real run of pre-pandemic months. And it started in 2019 in January at 1.4%, got to a high of 2.4 in May, um, in May, and then was, you know, down, stayed kind of, kind of, static around 2.2 ending the year in November and December. I, I'm at, I'm bringing this up to note. Is there an ideal rate of inflation? That was a good year for the Canadian economy. There wasn't trouble uh, afoot. And then obviously COVID hit and, and everything went topsy turvy. Is, 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 is there an ideal number and is it around that two and a half mark? 
Well, it tends to be. I mean, if you look at what stimulates economic growth in this country over the past, say, 30 years, it does tend to be around that magic 2% rate. But I think what's equally important is you have to look at the real interest rate, not necessarily the nominal interest rate, the one that people pay at the banks or, or, or owe to the banks or the banks pay them in a sense, but the real rate, the rate when you adjust for inflation. And the problem is, is that that has been creeping up so high that it's becoming more and more difficult for people to borrow money who need it to pay their bills. So you've got people kind of between a rock and a hard place going, what do I do if say my mortgage is coming due? And guess what, Greg? A lot of people think that we're out of the mortgage disaster. And I'm here to tell you, we're just mm -hmm. about to enter it. 18%. That is the number of mortgages in Canada that have been renegotiated since the prime went up. 18%. So quick math, four out of five people who own a mortgage in this country are still going to renegotiate as that number, as I said, has gone from 0.25 to 4.75. So four out of five people, 80% of this country still has to deal with that. And I'm afraid that we're going to see the bad old days and see a lot of people, sadly, either having to move or even drastically walking away from their home when they realize the debt on their home is worth more than their home. And that to me, that's the last domino to fall. That's the disaster scenario. And I would like to avoid it. But the Bank of Canada seems intent on getting there. And I'm not 100% sure why. Eric Hams, our guest, economics professor at TMU University. You probably saw as well, um, there was a story in the Star yesterday, and, and we've had um, Ron Butler, who's, um, who's a, a, you know, uh, a real estate expert, and, and he's great on the radio, um, but he noted that there are now 50-year amortizations, amortization, 60-year amortizations. In a couple of cases, people negotiate with the bank for now a 90-year amortization when they're 30 and, and they're 40 years old. And clearly, they're not going to live that long, but this is about you know, keeping the house some way, any way, it's not ideal. No one's getting, banks aren't giving out amortizations that long, but these are renegotiations. It's a really disturbing sign. Right. It's the same as if you went in tomorrow and you wanted to lease a car and you leased a car for 25 years. Yeah. What's the value of that car going to be in 25 years when you're still paying for it? These are really drastic events. And I know why people do them. People like it because people, again, I think psychologically, they want to say that I can afford a house, I can afford a car, I can feed my kids, I can put a roof over their head. And these are these should not be fantasies. But when you start offering things like these ridiculous amortization periods on borrowing anything, well, frankly, you're just suckering people. And you're hoping that, as P.T. Barnum said, there was a fool born every minute. The problem is even fools have to put a roof over their kids' heads. So I don't like these things. I think they are financial suicide. And I really, frankly, think I shame banks and other lending institutions that do this because it's just a fool's bet and they know it. Um, your thoughts on uh, on the new mayor-elect, uh, Olivia Chow. And I ask that because given your, um, your, your background in economics, I always point out almost every mayor of every big city in North America is always a Democrat. It's the last line of economic uh, defense. And and maybe people in cities tend to vote Democrat more than Republican. That's why they're there. But I also think there is an element of fiscal responsibility that doesn't let them spend like a Democratic governor or premier or a liberal premier or prime minister would. Phoenix has a Democratic mayor. Houston, Texas has a Democratic mayor. San Antonio has an independent mayor. Um, so I know people are a little bit worried about ideology here, but isn't the mayor just going to do what the mayor does? 
Well, first of all, I think American Democrats and Canadian NDPers are far different, more different than people think. Although you lived in the States, I never did. Uh, okay, so you asked me my opinion. I never lie on the radio, so I'm going to tell you the truth. I didn't vote for Olivia Chow. I probably would never vote for Olivia Chow just because ideologically Olivia Chow is far to the left of me. That said, uh, it, it's, a, it's a blank slate and we have to give her a chance. She is the mayor. She is the choice of the people. Um, I hope that she has fiscal responsibility somewhere in the back of her head. I haven't seen it yet. I didn't see it in her late husband's. Um, but I have to believe that she's only one vote on council and mm. she's going to have to work with some of the people who didn't get elected. I voted for Anna Bailau. I'll be completely honest mm -hmm. with you. I thought that she brought a lot to the table. I thought a lot of people brought a lot to the table. I just, you know, I, like I say, I am who I am and I'm kind of a right of center guy. Olivia is a left of center guy. And so I don't like a lot of the things she had to say. I also don't like that during the campaign, she didn't say very much of anything. Um, but couldn't, I, I couldn't we say that about Doug Ford last year? You run, if, if someone's a front runner, they've got a big lead. They they just have to make sure they don't trip over their own feet, really, in those last few weeks, don't they? Yeah, but I think you also have to believe that history matters and history matters and what people have done have mattered. And so you asked me about Olivia Chow and Olivia Chow has made decisions in the past that are far left of me. But again, I'm an academic. I'm a homeowner in the city of Toronto. I'd like to, as I always tell you, my vote is always for uh, people in this city who make a living and we need to increase those disposable incomes. And I will give Olivia Chow every chance to succeed. But I hope one day that we can have this discussion again and we can judge her fairly according to her record and not just according to rumor. I think so. I think all of that's uh, all that's true. And and obviously you being in the university community, so passionate about it, students, international students, student housing, student safety, student cost of living. It's all it all factors in um, because because kids need that and, and the family's helping to pay need that. Eric, I got to go. Thanks so much for the time. Stay healthy, Greg. Uh, Eric Camp joining us, professor of economics at Toronto Metropolitan University. You can often hear him on uh, Roy Green's show when I'm in the car on the weekend uh, between two and five. It's uh, Roy Green and Eric's often on that show as well. Now that all this all this sticky mayoral candidate business is out of the way, the arguing, the stumping, the supporting, the endorsing, it's all gone. It's all gone. And Olivia Chow, who she had on yesterday and uh, had a great chat with, we might re-rack some of that even around 8.30 this morning, um, is, uh, is, is so, and she's going to take uh, some time off, which she should. I couldn't tell you how many exhausted people, candidates, um, people who were running the candidates, media reps, managers, they were all really, really tired yesterday and laying low. We were hoping, and I think we still do, at some point on the show, on the station, to talk to Anna Bailao because I'm sure her – I thought her speech was fantastic. I thought her wrap-up speech to her supporters was great. And um, and she obviously came a lot closer than some people had determined she would to winning the mayor election. We are just talking with Ontario NDP leader Mart Stiles about it. And, yeah, if you were out there on the stomp for, for Olivia Chow for 15, 20 minutes, my, my phone started getting messages. I started sending messages going – Anna could win this almost to the point where Anna is going to win this. And then all that advanced voting came in. And again, so many what ifs. What if Doug Ford doesn't run Mark Saunders? What if John Tory doesn't endorse anybody? What if he's out earlier for Anna Bailao? There were a million things that could have changed 
um, change the trajectory of of time and space in that particular election campaign. Um, so we mentioned the air quality earlier on. I like again. I stepped outside. Um, I don't know, Lyle, if, if you've stepped out in the last half hour or so, um, I highly encourage you get some fresh air in this job once in a while. Touch grass. Isn't that what they say when people are on social media too much? They're like, go touch grass. It's not meant as an insult. Like, go pound salt. It's go touch grass, isn't it? I think, I think it's just more of a gentle suggestion that you do have to go outside sometimes. I think people today forget that, especially in social media, video game era that we're in. A lot of people don't go outside and touch grass, but uh, I was walking into work this morning and I could certainly smell it then. I don't know how bad it is out there now. I haven't been out in a while, but uh, on the walk into the station, it, it was certainly noticeable. You get it. You get that weird feeling because we're right by Lake Ontario at Coors Key, um, which is uh, which is one of the great lakes, I'm told. I don't read very often, but I, I'm told that. I'll believe that when I see it. I'm looking for a second source on that. But you feel a little different down here because usually two things happen. It's often breezier. It's often colder. And I think it actually kind of kind of covers up um, scents in the air. And so, I, 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 again, I didn't smell anything last night being down at the soccer. But this morning is definitely something. And I remember the morning three weeks ago on the Tuesday – when I, I just got in my car, we have an underground parking garage here, wouldn't have had the windows down, hearing all about this air quality, and I stepped out of the car, walked maybe 60 feet into the bank. I had to go to the bank for something, and it just smelled toasty in the air. I'd never quite experienced this. I started asking random strangers. It's like if you saw an alien spacecraft, we're like, you smell that, right? You smell that, right? I started asking everybody. And they all were like, oh, yeah, <laughs> like it's been here. The guy's like, I've been outside since 7 o'clock. I've smelt it three and a half straight hours. Now, it's interesting because I was actually a volunteer firefighter for 10 years, so this smell is not foreign to me at all, uh, especially from the forest fires perspective. Being a firefighter in New Brunswick, you definitely spend some time out in the middle of nowhere uh, beating the edge of the fire out with a shovel, as I have many times. But it was interesting to smell it right here in the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. I never expected to have this problem, uh, leaving my apartment and looking at the people I was with and being like, wow, this is actually stronger here than it was in certain times where I would be fighting the fire actively, standing right next to it. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it has to be one of those incredible sensations. I know it was about three weeks ago, and I think people will spot it, uh, spot it today. And I've never really, like, there's two times where I've I've gone, even for, like, a run. So basically, you're exhausting your lungs a little bit. I still think of myself as a young, healthy guy with good lungs that never smoked, blah, blah, blah. But I remember running once in in naturally Los Angeles, and you're like, yeah, you feel it a little bit differently. And then there's something totally separate when you when I the first time I went to Denver, Colorado, and you feel the altitude and you're like, oh my goodness. I've never been to the prairies. I've never been to Alberta or Saskatchewan. So I don't know if it's like that there. You been to Alberta? I have I haven't been to Alberta, but I can tell you there's a big air quality difference between here and out east. I think it's just because of the the level of co concentrated carbon emissions you have in one spot. It's a lot of big words, but okay. One of the first things I do when I get off the plane whenever I go home to visit my family is I just take a great big deep breath and I'm like, "Ah, fresh air." I can actually like take a big deep breath in and mm. you don't kind of feel it in your chest, but uh it's it's much much worse in the city on days like today, and I think this is going to be a problem that we just have to deal with every summer going forward. Now it seems it might be one of those things, but 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 there's only perhaps it's a bit of a confluence of a lot of boxes being checked. It's wind patterns with fires with uh, you know with with sort of you know like I'm not sure there's anything that tactically the normal average citizen can do to prevent the smell from this point on. So it's it's how do you maintain it? How do you clear some of the brush away? I mentioned a couple weeks ago, 
people used to go allow when they were my age and they would go plant trees and they'd go away for the summer. And that was that was like a job. You'd go overnight. You'd sleep in a cabin. You'd be out there. You get paid decent money. Um, I think by the government to go plant trees. Well, why don't we do the same thing and have people clear brush away from potential areas where fires could spread? Because it's it's left to individuals privately to do that right now would be my understanding of it. Absolutely. And even then, you can put as much effort into it as you want. It There comes a point when it, it it's unavoidable, especially when you just have a long, extended period of super, super dry weather, and then a thunderstorm rolls through. Lightning will strike, and and there's your issue right there. Mm-hmm. There's nothing anyone can do about that, especially when it happens in an area that's like hundreds of kilometers away from a paved road and starts burning its way in, as we've seen happen in Alberta and Quebec yeah. recently. Yeah. This is the oddest story, and I've never – I think we've all pulled up to the gas pumps and been in the full service lane, especially if you stop at the side of the highway. You go to one of those places where it's all it's all in one building and they're busy and there's like five different places to eat and you go in and by the way a small bottle of like uh diet coke is like three dollars and 69 cents you just feel gross about that but but you pull up to the to the full service gas pump we've all done that at times and then there's this awkward moment where you're like oh god i don't want to pay extra and you're all over me and you're asking me if i need the wiper done like you feel like i pump my own gas since 1988. So why why am I here? But Oregon, just last week, this is not an old news story, gave final approval to a bill that ends a state ban on self-service gas pumps. That's been in place since 1951. Like, good for getting around to this. 72 years into, basically, full-service gas, when most of us have been like, that's the last thing you would take as the full service option. Like, Lyle, would you have known that 49 states you could pump your own gas in, but in Oregon you couldn't? I had no idea. No idea. No idea there was a place that this was straight up outlawed. Like, I know, I, I see uh, full service gas pumps now as almost like a luxury if, you, if you're willing to pay that extra bit because we did have a full service gas station where I was from for a while, but everybody saw that as kind of like the luxury option because you actually felt the need to tip the person that was pumping your gas. That's as well. where you're at now. That's where you're at now. There's a scene we just watched again. It just happened to be on, so we watched it. We watched Back to the Future again, and there's a point where Marty McFly goes back to 1955, and he looks at the gas station, and basically a guy brings his car in, a 50s car, clearly. It runs over the the hose. It The bell rings, and then five dudes run out all in uniforms and somebody's checking the tire pressure and somebody's doing the wiper and so, and somebody's clean. <laughs> like it's, it's an awkward, it's like a pit stop at an Indy car race. And it's awkward. I think now when we get, when we stop somewhere, I found filling up full, uh, full service awkward in 1990 to have somebody just kind of asking, especially if you knew the guy from high school is like, and t- like somebody on the football team and he'd be like, hi, like it just feels weird to have a peer do all that stuff for you because you're trying to be a manly man and you're like, I can do all that stuff myself. I can get up on my own. I can check under the hood and put wiper fluid in. I don't need you to do this stuff for me. And, and for me, it slows down the process too because if you only have two attendants there, you've got four pumps and all of a sudden there's a lineup of like six or seven cars waiting to get fuel. It just gums up the works because you have to wait for this guy to go around car to car, figure out how much they want, what what variety of fuel they want, supreme, regular, whatever. And it just takes longer to get people through the lineup. That's right. I know there's oil changes. There's, I, I don't know that. Maybe it's a, a male thing. Maybe it is. But there's I, I in the States, there was an oil change place where they would make you get out of your car and then they would change. They would take the take it into the bay and change the oil. 
And I felt really, really awkward about that. That said, when you sit there in the driver's seat and they change your oil and they're like, this is wrong. That's wrong. Did you know your air filter's got like a bird in it? Like you just feel like, oh God, like about two feet tall when they tell you, the guy's telling you everything's wrong with your car and you're sitting there going, oh, okay, yeah, like let's, I, 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 I was sure I checked the air filter a couple months. I don't know why I'd use that voice, but whatever. You had to sit there and it's nod just, and pretend like you haven't seen the check engine light on for you, two months and you, you're ignoring it. You gotta take it. Exactly, exactly in this case. So it's funny, this is a sign here. Seattle Sounders um, and Portland Timbers are MLS rivals and somebody brought a sign to a Portland game, a Seattle fan, real men pump their own gas. So this has been a thing in uh, Oregon for a good chunk of time, but they finally changed it now to limit or to end the ban on self-service gas pumps. It's a remarkable story. Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Weekdays at 5.30. We are 640 Toronto.